Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 107 of the show, and it is another heavy episode for you, just a ton to get into. We will recap the divisional round of the NFL playoffs and look ahead to the conference championship weekend, which is upon us. We'll do some standings updates in the NHL and the NBA. And then uh, over on the PGA Tour, we'll recap uh, what was just an outstanding weekend of golf and take a look ahead to this weekend's tournament. And then the Around the Island segment, of course, has plenty of news from all over the place. But we will start off in the National Football League and uh, recap the divisional round. We had four games this weekend, two on Saturday and two on Sunday, right? The final eight teams of the NFL playoffs. Saturday's games uh, featured the top overall seeds from each conference, who, of course, were on bye weeks last week. The first game on Saturday afternoon was in the AFC. That was the number four Jacksonville Jaguars traveling to Arrowhead to take on the top-seeded Kansas City Chiefs. All right, These two teams did play each other back in week 10 of the regular season in Kansas City, and uh, the Chiefs handled the Jaguars easily in that one, uh, 27-17. All right, uh, pretty similar score uh, in this one as well. But, uh, you know, the Chiefs, obviously, they were rested coming off their bye week, whereas the Jaguars came into this thing uh, fresh off of a historic 27-point comeback. All right, and uh, the key was, you know, how did how did the Jaguars play in the first half, right? I mean, that's obviously against the Chargers in the wild card round. They were absolutely abysmal. So, uh, you know, the key was, was getting a, a good start. And, I mean, the Jags really didn't play, you know, terrible. When this game got started and got going, uh, yeah, the Chiefs scored pretty quick, I think, on their opening drive. But um, shortly after that, in the first quarter, uh, Patrick Mahomes, he was scrambling forward out of the pocket. He got tackled by uh, two Jaguars defenders, one of which was Arden Key. And uh, Key landed on Mahomes' right ankle which caused it to bend uh, inward. It was a nasty-looking fall uh, injury, rather. I mean, it looked um, looked more like a knee injury at first, but uh, he got up after a minute, severe limp. I mean, Mahomes couldn't even hardly stand up on it. Tried to go to the sidelines and was like, nah, I'm going to continue to play. The next couple of snaps, you know, he um, tried to snap it, but he was hobbling. Uh, well, when they got to the end of the quarter, he went and got it taped up. Um, went out for, I think, another series before um, coming out in the second quarter and going to the locker room. Uh, we didn't know if he was coming back. He ended up um, getting some more tape and some treatment on that at halftime. But late in that uh, second quarter, uh, Chad Henney, backup quarterback for the Chiefs, took the Chiefs on a 98-yard touchdown drive, uh, which proved to be just massive uh, for the Chiefs. 
All right, now credit to the Jaguars. All right, Patrick Mahomes did return to the game to start the second half, and uh, the Jags hung tough for most of the game. All right, they were able to answer a few scores. All right, about halfway through the fourth quarter, though, um, it looked like the Jags were were making a comeback. All right, but uh, halfway through the fourth quarter, uh, Jacksonville got the ball in the red zone, and Lawrence's pass to um, I think it was Jamal Agnew, perhaps, uh, down around the inside the 10-yard line. Agnew fumbled, all right, and the Chiefs recovered. And then on the ensuing drive, uh, after I think they forced a punt, um, the, the Jaguars got the ball back, and in the second play of that drive, uh, Lawrence threw an interception. So uh, it was two turnovers for the Jaguars in a three-play span, all right? So that's not what you want. That pretty much did the Jaguars in on that one. Uh, final score was Kansas City 27, Jacksonville 20, which I just mentioned was very similar to their uh, Week 10 score. That was 27-17. But Jacksonville hung tough. You know, give them credit. Uh, they were pretty heavy underdogs in this thing, and, um, you know, uh, they covered the spread. I think the point spread was 9.5 points. They lost by 7, so they covered the spread. But, um, you know, it just the Chiefs were, were clearly better. All right, Travis Kelsey had a monster game for the Chiefs. He had 14 catches, uh, uh, 10 of which came in the first half, all right? And he became the first player since 2015 with at least 10 catches and two touchdowns in one half of a playoff game. And those 14 catches by Kelsey were the most catches uh, by a tight end ever in a playoff game. So, you know, Mahomes was on one leg for the second half pretty much. Uh, making some off-balance throws, throwing from his front foot, just doing typical Patrick Mahomes things, and it worked out. Um, Chiefs ended up winning uh, 27-20 to move on. Now, the nightcap on Saturday was the NFC. Number six, New York Giants traveling up uh, to Philadelphia to take on the top-seeded Philadelphia Eagles, all right? These two teams came in, uh, their NFC East division rivals, so they played each other twice in the regular season, once in week 14 and once in week 18, all right? Uh, Philly won both of those games, all right? And, um, you know, they had the bye week, right? So they're rested, all right? And um, just like the Chiefs, uh, although the Eagles, you know, playing a divisional opponent for the third time, it's very difficult to beat a team, same team, three times in one year, let alone a divisional opponent who sees you regularly uh, and kind of knows what uh, you're all about. Um, but the Giants played pretty well in their wild card game against Minnesota, right? Surprised a lot of people by winning that one. You know, but Philly came into this game, or really came into the playoffs as the as the favorite to win the Super Bowl. And they had been that way probably since about week eight or week nine, about halfway through the season. All right, so uh, this game, though, my goodness, it was, uh, as the kids say, it was hella ugly, all right? Uh, the Eagles came out flying in this thing. They looked every bit like the uh, green machine that they were during the regular season, all right? And it was clear that uh, they were just simply the better team, all right? That extra week of rest really paid off, all right? The Eagles got up 28 nothing at halftime, all right? I don't really need to do an in-depth uh, recap of this one. Eagles were up 28 nothing at halftime. The Giants scored their first touchdown of the game uh, a little more than halfway through the third quarter, and um, that was all she wrote for the Giants there on offense. They were just out of sync all night, played really the complete opposite of how they played in the wild card game against Minnesota the week prior. Daniel Jones couldn't complete a pass. 
you know, Barkley, Saquon Barkley had one big run, but other than that, he was highly mediocre. Uh, the final score in this thing was 38-7, to Philadelphia won. All right, now, that same score of 38-7 to was the score of the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, same score that they won by in the divisional round uh, several years back when they beat the Minnesota Vikings 38-7. to That game, side note, was also on January 21st. Uh, back in 2018. So exactly five years later to the day in a divisional game, they post an identical score of 38-7 to against their opponent to move on to the conference championship. Now that game in 2018, that year just so happened to be the year that the Eagles won the Super Bowl. So I'm not saying they're going to win the Super Bowl, and God, I sure as hell hope they don't. Uh, I'm just giving you facts on that. Now in that game, all right, the Eagles on Saturday, all right, they tied their largest margin of victory in a playoff game in franchise history, all right. Um, in that game, they also rushed for 268 yards, which was their second most rushing yards in a playoff game in franchise history. And they recorded five sacks in that game on defense, which is their most in a playoff game in the Super Bowl era. They led the league in sacks during the regular season and just continued that Um uh, picked up where they left off really there uh, in the playoffs. So uh, that was just a complete annihilation. So on Saturday, uh, both of the top-seeded teams in each conference moved on uh, to the conference championship round. But that brings us to Sunday's games, which uh, followed kind of the same format as the games we saw on Saturday. We had one game that was not particularly close and another game that was. And the first game on Sunday afternoon was in the AFC. It was the number three Cincinnati Bengals uh, traveling over to Buffalo to play the number two seeded Buffalo Bills. All right, these two teams were set to play back in week 17 of the regular season in Cincinnati, but of course that was the DeMar Hamlin game. It ended up getting canceled. All right, the Bengals were up 7 3 at the time of the stoppage. All right, uh, but this was a, you know, gumming it. Going into this game, it's true battle of the heavyweights, right? Um, you know, Cincinnati's the reigning AFC champion coming into this game uh, on a nine-game winning streak, all right? And then, of course, Buffalo is, is Buffalo, right? They're at home, and uh, we're the number two seed. Played really well all year. Josh Allen up there in the MVP conversation. <clears throat> Had playing for DeMar Hamlin, right? Team of destiny kind of deal. Um some injuries, though, on the Bengals' side. They were without uh, starting left tackle Jonah Williams, who had dislocated his kneecap in their wild card win the week prior. All right, and um, they ended up losing another offensive lineman during the game. Uh, but the scene for this game, it was in Buffalo. Uh, it was incredible. All right, first uh, the weather. Right, it was uh, it was as, about as Buffalo as Buffalo gets. All right, it was thirty three degrees. It was snowing. Uh, and the snow kind of picked up throughout the rest of the game. Like, it, it snowed heavier as the game went on. Field was covered in snow. Uh, not a lot, enough to, it was enough to see, you know, the markings on the field or whatever, but uh, it still was, it was a snow game. And then secondly, and this raised a lot of uh, suspicion or conspiracy theories, was that Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, uh, was in attendance for the game. They showed him arriving in a golf cart going into the locker room uh, they showed his mom and his younger brother also um, at the game as well 
Now, uh, he, it showed Hamlin going into the locker room and then being escorted into the elevator that is directly adjacent to the locker room where he went up to a suite. And they showed him a couple of times on TV in the suite. Now, he had like a big puffer jacket on, uh, face mask, sunglasses, and it was pretty obvious that they weren't allowing anybody to get near him uh, from what it appeared on camera. Even in the suite, he had his, his hood up, his face mask on, sunglasses on, so you never really saw any facial features. Now, I, I don't know why the Bills would, would make that up, that DeMar Hamlin was there. I think that would be you know, maybe disrespectful in a way to DeMar Hamlin if if it was not him. But there's been a lot of stuff on social media that surfaced about that not being DeMar Hamlin actually there like it was somebody else. Um, either way, I mean, you know, I, I figured, it, you know, my opinion is that it was. I don't know why you would necessarily fake that, maybe to get an advantage in the, um, you know, the morale department. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it didn't really matter who it was because this game was all Cincinnati, especially early on. Uh, Bengals jumped out to a 14-0 lead in the first quarter. Um, your total yards in the first quarter, Cincinnati had 160. Buffalo had eight yards in that opening quarter. All right, It just was a complete domination. Buffalo got their first uh, touchdown about halfway through the second quarter. Bengals took a 17-7 lead into halftime, and from there did not get any better for Buffalo. Uh, the Bengals dominated on both sides of the football. All right, on offense, they gained 30 first downs, which was a Cincinnati Bengals postseason record. And then on defense, they, they held Buffalo to only 10 total points in the game. All right, and they were Buffalo was one for three in the red zone, and also uh, the Bengals also grabbed an interception. Uh, off of Josh Allen. Uh, Cincinnati won this game 27 to 10. All right. Not particularly close at any point. And uh, it was just really uh, all Cincinnati. It was a very impressive defensive performance by the Bengals. You know, the Bills uh, have an explosive offense and they were at home in weather that, you know, they're really accustomed to playing in, uh, more so really than probably any other team in the league. And uh, the Bengals just flat-out steamrolled them to uh, advance to the AFC Conference title game for the second year in a row. Over in uh, the NFC, the Sunday evening game was number five Dallas Cowboys traveling over to Levi Stadium to take on the number two San Francisco 49ers. <clears throat> okay, these two teams did not meet in the regular season this past year, but they did meet in the wild card round of the playoffs last year. Of course, that game was in Dallas. San Francisco came out on top. And, uh, you know, San Francisco came into this thing having won 11 games in a row. Uh, Brock Purdy had won all six of his first career starts. Uh, you know, really has looked uh, really good at times and um, certainly not like Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick of the NFL draft. But, you know, the offense was really catered to Brock Purdy and what he does really well. It's loaded with skill position players. Now, this was actually the ninth all-time meeting between the Cowboys and the 49ers in the playoffs, well, which is the most uh, of all time between any two teams. And the average ticket price to this thing, uh, average ticket price was $1,420, which made it the most expensive divisional game ticket price average of all time. Okay, uh, this game started off very slow. All right, two of the top defenses in, uh, in the league really showed their teeth in this one. Uh, it was a field goal fest for San Francisco in the first half. All right, 
Uh, Dallas did score a touchdown in the first uh, first half, uh, but then I believe that came in the second quarter. It was a Prescott pass to Dalton Schultz, uh, but then Brett Maher, oh boy, right? The uh, Cowboys' infamous kicker who missed four extra points last week. Well, uh, his first extra point attempt this week was blocked. Now, they showed a replay from field level, and that sucker was going wide left, uh, it appeared. So, if it wasn't blocked, uh, it was going to be wide left, but nonetheless, it counts as a miss, meaning he had missed uh, five extra points between those two games, uh, which is a record for one postseason. Uh, but the most important factor of this game was late in the second quarter. Dallas Cowboys running back Tony Pollard, he got tackled, ended up fracturing his left fibula. His left ankle bent inward. Uh, originally, it was reported maybe possibly a high ankle sprain, but after the game, uh, they announced that it was a fractured left fibula. So he got carted to the locker room, looked like he had an air cast on, and um, that really uh, took the wind out of the Cowboys' sails, all right? Especially uh, as big of an offensive piece that Tony Pollard has been all year. Uh, that really rattled Dallas. Uh, the score at halftime was 9-6. to six. San Francisco was up thanks to three field goals. All right, and in the second half, more defense. Uh, great performance, really, by both defenses. All right, San Francisco got 10 more points in the second uh, half, uh, and Dallas could only manage one more field goal in the second half. So the final score of the game, uh, the Cowboys had a last-ditch effort on a wild play uh, at the end of the game, last play of the game. Zeke Elliott, took, uh, he snapped the ball to Dak Prescott, got ran the hell over, Dak Prescott threw a pass. All the linemen were out, out lined up like a wide receiver. They were going to do, you know, the hook and lateral play, uh, but Prescott's pass went to Cavante uh, Turpin, who got absolutely pummeled by Jimmy Ward as soon as he caught it. So uh, it, it looked more embarrassing, really, than anything else. So that fell short. Final score: San Francisco nineteen, Dallas twelve. Kind of a weird score. Uh, low, very low scoring. <clears throat> All right, Christian McCaffrey. He only had 35 rushing yards, but he did have a rushing touchdown, which was his eighth straight game with a rushing touchdown. It's the longest streak of his career. All right. And, um, you know, Brock Purdy didn't really look great, uh, but he didn't look bad. Um, he, he did what he needed to do. He made some really great throws, including a, a wild 30-something yard play to George Kittle. Pass uh, was out in front of him. Kittle stuck his hand out, hit off his hand, off his helmet, then off his hand before he caught it finally. Uh, that was probably the biggest play of the game. Um, Dallas on defense missed an opportunity for an interception. Trevon Diggs had one hit him in the hands. He wasn't expecting it, uh, but it hit him right in the hands and the chest, and uh, he did not come down with it. That would have um, – San Francisco ended up scoring. I think that was the drive McCaffrey scored that touchdown. That was their only touchdown there. Um, but coming into this game, if you just said that uh, Dallas was would be able to hold San Francisco to one touchdown – limit Christian McCaffrey to 35 yards, Debo Samuel to 44 yards, I think everybody would have said, well, yeah, Dallas won the game, all right? But two more costly interceptions from Dak Prescott in this thing um, really, you know, just did not help. And then the, the offense's inability to kind of crack that San Francisco defense, uh, just it was not, not a pretty game, very ugly, uh, grinded out defensive game. Um, and, and here's the deal. Dallas, you know, obviously, you know, you all know by now they're my favorite team. 
Uh, I'm a homer when it comes to the Cowboys, and I'm not making excuses for the Cowboys, but Dallas really got hosed in this in this thing. Um, San Francisco played in the wild card round on Saturday afternoon. They were the very first playoff game to play, so they got done Saturday evening. The Cowboys didn't play until Monday night, so they got done very late on Monday night in Tampa, had to fly back to Dallas, uh, essentially lost a day of, of practice, uh, so the 49ers got two extra days of rest uh, and practice than the Cowboys did. And then Cowboys then had to fly back out uh, across to the other side of the country uh, to San Francisco uh, to play this game. So, you know, I'm not saying that would have made a difference if Dallas was home, uh, if they would have played like that. Uh, but I do certainly think that that played into it. I mean, San Francisco came out. They looked really good. Um, that extra couple days of preparation for the Cowboys, you know, really, um, I think, benefited them. And, of course, they didn't know they were playing Dallas until uh, after the conclusion of Monday Night Football, but they knew they were going to get the winner of that game. So um, they started preparing, you know, as soon as their game was done on Saturday. So um, I did, just to revisit my, my picks, my predictions, uh, I went 5-1 and one in the wild card round. And uh, in the divisional round, I went two and two, all right? I correctly picked the Saturday games by picking Kansas City and Philly. And then I incorrectly picked Buffalo and Dallas on Sunday. So I got both the Saturday games right, both the Sunday games wrong. I thought with my heart, not my head on that Dallas pick. But uh, that my overall record in the NFL playoffs for predictions is seven and three. All right, so not bad, um, but... That brings us to the conference championship weekend, all right? That is this Sunday, January 29th, all right? There's only two games, obviously, the NFC championship and the AFC championship, all right? The NFC championship features uh, the number two seed San Francisco 49ers traveling to the Northeast to play the number one seeded Philadelphia Eagles, all right? That game is at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sunday afternoon on Fox. Uh, Philadelphia, right, absolutely dominant their last week against the Giants. They looked every bit uh, a part of the top team in the league that they were in the regular season. Uh, You know, Jalen Hurts didn't even have to break a sweat in that game against the Giants last week. Their rushing attack, over 260 yards, like we mentioned, they really took care of business. I mean, Jalen Hurts still had two passing touchdowns, but uh, only 150-something yards passing. So he really didn't – he still was good. He didn't have to be great. Uh, Didn't really get any wear and tear on that sore shoulder. So, uh, you know, Philly comes into this thing looking like an absolute monster of a team, something that you don't want any part of. Um, Philadelphia, you know, we know what their offense can do. Jalen Hurts is in the MVP conversation. Their defense is is just as uh, just as nasty as their offense. All right, and then um, San Francisco on the other side. Uh, this is their third conference championship game appearance in the last four years. All right, the 49ers come into this game having won 12 games in a row. All right, uh, it's you know they got possible two games left. All right, so they haven't lost um, since week seven, and um, Brock Purdy wasn't even the starting quarterback back then. So it doesn't matter who the quarterback is. uh, San Francisco keeps winning, but Purdy, of course, is playing really well. Certainly played better than Dak Prescott last week, 
and uh, was phenomenal in their wild card win over Seattle a couple of weeks ago. So, um, you know, the, the defense, 49ers defense will travel, all right? Uh, this could be another defensive game that we're looking at. Uh, we know what the 49ers defense did last week against Dallas. All right, Nick Bosa led the NFL in sacks this year with, I think, 18 and a half. But uh, Philadelphia led the NFL in sacks as a team with 70. So uh, both defenses can get after the quarterback, force pressure. Uh, pressure causes turnovers. So we, we could really be looking at another defensive battle. It would not surprise me if we saw a very low-scoring game. Uh, but, again, both offenses have the firepower to make this thing, you know, a uh, 42-40 uh, game as well. So... Um, Brock Purdy, though, he is the fifth rookie quarterback to reach the conference championship game, and he's uh, 7-0 and as a starting quarterback, or 8-0 now as a starting quarterback, all right? Uh, or maybe it's still set. Either way, 7-0, and 8-0, doesn't really matter. The point is Brock Purdy has not lost as the starting quarterback, all right? Um, and then speaking of quarterbacks, Brock Purdy's 23 years old. Jalen Hurts is uh, 24 years old. So this is the official... Um, youngest quarterback matchup in NFC Championship game history. All right, lowest combined age between starting quarterbacks in NFC Championship game history or Conference Championship game history, really, uh, for the NFL. But um, again, San Francisco comes into this thing uh, on just an absolute blaze of 12 games in a row. Philly was completely dominant. They were the top overall seed in the entire league. Uh, this game has all the makings of just an absolute barn burner. And these two teams did not play each other uh, during the regular season. So uh, this will be the first matchup uh, of the year between these two teams, all right? Now, as far as my prediction goes, uh, I, I think, you know, obviously the quarterback edge goes to Philadelphia. I mean, Jalen Hurts, I think, is, is probably better uh, at this point than, than Brock Purdy. But it's not that big of a... Uh, a talent gap as you would have suspected had we predicted this you know several months back when the season started so um you know Philly's at home San Francisco hasn't lost in you know three months so uh this is really a pick 'em game the the point spread for both of these conference championship games is very tight uh I absolutely hate Philadelphia Eagles I uh, do not want to see them win and I'm not going to pick them to win uh, because of that, um, you know, I, give me the San Francisco 49ers. I, I think their offense is every bit as good or better. And uh, their defense, I think, also um, between Nick Bosa, Fred Warner, uh, Dre Greenlaw, yeah, I think those guys, you know, and even their secondary um, on the back end with Jimmy Ward, I, I think the, the 49ers defense will, will play better than the Eagles' uh, defense will. And I think ultimately that's what this game is going to come down to. Uh, because both defenses are very capable, but uh, I do like San Francisco to uh, to win this game and advance to the Super Bowl. Uh, but this, you know, again, San Francisco's been here. They've done it. Philly hasn't been here since 2018. San Francisco, this is their uh, second year in a row in this game, third out of the last four, all right? So they know, they know what they're doing, and um, I just think that San Francisco is the more complete team, although it's a very, very – very, very finite difference between the two teams. I do think San Francisco just has more uh, playmakers on both sides of the ball, and ultimately that's why they get it done. 
But we'll take a look over at the AFC Championship game. That features the number three Cincinnati Bengals traveling down to Arrowhead Stadium to take on the number one top overall seed in the AFC, the Kansas City Chiefs. That game is at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, and that game's on CBS. All right. Kansas City Chiefs, this is their fifth straight appearance in the AFC title game, which makes them the third team ever to appear in five straight conference title games. The other two teams um, were the the 2010s New England Patriots teams and the mid-70s Oakland Raiders teams, all right? Cincinnati is making their second consecutive appearance uh, in the AFC Championship game, which means that this is a rematch from last year's AFC Championship game that featured these two same teams, Cincinnati and Kansas City. Uh, These two teams did meet uh, in the regular season back in Week 12. That game was in Cincinnati. The Bengals won that one uh, 27-24, which, ironically enough, is the same score uh, that these two teams played to last year's AFC title game. Cincinnati beat Kansas City 27-24 in overtime uh, to advance to the Super Bowl, all right? Kansas City is 0-3 against Cincinnati since uh, the 2021 season. All right, that includes regular and postseason. Okay, so they're very familiar with each other. This will be the fourth time they've played in the last couple of years. Uh, Second year in a row in this game, uh, Joe Burrow uh, is 3-0 against Patrick Mahomes. And uh, the story of this game, though, is going to be the health of Patrick Mahomes' right ankle. Okay, he was diagnosed with a high ankle sprain after that injury last week. He played through it. Um, he's been receiving treatment, and what Coach Andy Reid has said, he's responded well to the treatment and uh, feels probably better than he should. Uh, but that could be just coach speak. Uh, you you have to assume that Patrick Mahomes will be out there to start the game, and um, so Cincinnati's game plan will be for Mahomes under center. Now, high ankle sprains typically are multi-week injuries. You know, anywhere from you know three to five weeks probably. Uh, throughout the regular season. But in this time of the year, you do not have that kind of time. So uh, Mahomes is going to be out there, but the question is how effective will he, uh, you know, will he be? He looked pretty damn good on one ankle last week uh, after the injury. He didn't really have to be spectacular, but he was good enough, uh, made some passes that were, you know, very uh, Mahomes-like. And, uh, but he did not play a defense last week in Jacksonville. Now, they're a very capable defense, the Jaguars, but he did not play one Uh, as capable as Cincinnati's, uh, given the way that Cincinnati played against Buffalo last week. So it's going to be interesting to see how often the Bengals pressure Mahomes and um, what Mahomes can do, because his mobility certainly will be limited. Not that Mahomes is one of the more mobile quarterbacks in the league, but he certainly can get out of trouble when he has to and make a circus throw. Um, So that's going to be the main storyline in this thing. But on the other side, the Bengals, uh, they – we talked about it a little bit ago. They played lights out against the Buffalo Bills, all right, the many considered to be the best or one of the best teams for most of the year. All right. Uh, Joe Burrow has absolutely solidified himself as a top three quarterback in the NFL. And frankly, at this point, he's probably right up there with Mahomes. All right. Uh, I think the consensus is that Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league and uh, a tier by himself. But then you have the Josh Allens, the Joe Burrows, you know, those kind of quarterbacks. And so I think 
Joe Burrow is right up there uh, with Mahomes, right? Arm talent, uh, accuracy, um, velocity on throws, his escapability. You know, he, he's also not real mobile, but he knows how to do it and when to do it. And um, it, those traits up there with, with Burrow put him near the top of the league. Um, and then on the defensive side, of course, you know, Cincinnati's offense too, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon. Joe Mixon finally found the end zones. First time in, I think, um, seven or eight weeks that he had found the end zone. So um, he, uh, you know, got back in the end zone. That O-line is a little banged up. All right, Jonah Williams may not play with that dislocated knee. Uh, they had another one go down in last week's game. So, uh, But they played really well against a, a tough Buffalo defense. And so, you know... Cincinnati's defense, like I mentioned, that was probably as impressive as I've seen a defensive performance this year against that Buffalo offense. Um, I know the weather wasn't ideal for for uh, an offensive game, but you know the Bengals still put up 27 points, held Buffalo to 10. So uh, that says a lot about Cincinnati's defense, their defensive coordinator changing schemes around, and um, you know this game has firepower all over the field. Uh, Top two quarterbacks in the league, like we just mentioned, they're going to go head-to-head. Joe Burrow has never lost to Patrick Mahomes. He's 3-0 and against him. And on the other side, Patrick Mahomes, he has nine career playoff wins, which is the second most playoff wins ever by a player in their first six seasons. All right, uh, Both teams are absolutely loaded on offense. I just mentioned the Cincinnati offense. And then on Kansas City, I mean, where do you, where do you stop the list, right? It's Mahomes. It's uh, Travis Kelsey. It's Juju Smith-Schuster. It's Kadarius Toney, all right? Isaiah Pacheco, a rookie running backs, turned into their starter. I mean, he's just, a, he's just a beast, too. So both these teams are loaded on offense. Defensively, you know, Kansas City's got some playmakers. Chris Jones, Frank Clark, all right? Um, Nick Bolton as a, as a linebacker is very solid. Um, you know, the Chiefs may have the better defense on paper, but uh, the games aren't played on paper, and I'll tell you that if Cincinnati plays defense the way that they did against Buffalo, um, this game's this game's going to be uh, another victory for the Bengals. All right, and so I think um, this game probably lends itself more towards an offensive game. The last uh, two times we've seen these two teams play, they have ended in a score of twenty-seven to twenty-four. So. I would start with that as your baseline as far as what would we would expect. All right. And um, so we'll we'll see some points on the board. All right. But it's it's gonna come down to which defense can can limit the explosive plays because the offenses on both teams are capable of going to the going to the house on any given play. All right. They have the playmakers to do it. So it's which team can limit the explosive plays. And um, with what I saw last week uh, with Burroughs you know, record against Mahomes, and the fact, you know, simply that Mahomes is not 100% healthy, will not be 100% healthy. I don't care how much treatment he gets, it's still going to hurt. It's He's not going to be his normal self, and I do think that will limit because Joe Burrow is 100% healthy and, you know, uh, was second in the NFL in uh, touchdown passes this year, I believe. So, um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want to doubt Mahomes, all right? Um, but Mahomes has made five straight AFC title game appearances. He has two trips to the Super Bowl out of those five games, and he's only won one of them. All right, so this is this is pretty crucial 
for for Patrick Mahomes' um, legacy, right? If he if he can win another Super Bowl this year, give him two in his first uh, six seasons, you know, I mean, you're you're talking about one of the greats of all time. He's already started in that conversation, but in terms of resume building, this is a this is a big game for Patrick Mahomes. And then, of course, Joe Burrow. Same thing with him. I mean, he's been in the league for a few years, and uh, this is his third season. He's already been to one Super Bowl, and um, I think he certainly wants to get back and show that this Cincinnati team is uh, right up there with the elites of the AFC. So my official prediction is that Cincinnati uh, will beat Kansas City, uh, but would not surprise me at all. Kansas City's favored, I think, by a point and a half. Um, because they're the higher seed, they're at home. So Arrowhead Stadium obviously is home field advantage, big time. But you know, I, I don't. Joe Burrow is his demeanor, his attitude. Uh, that none of that matters. Home field advantage. You know, he doesn't care about any of that. So uh, give me the Bengals to beat the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. And then um, just a side note: three of the four final four teams here in the conference championship are a repeat of last year. That's San Francisco and then Kansas City and Cincinnati. So uh, we're not seeing uh, some any really any new teams. We got one, obviously, with Philly, but, um, you know, they've been the best team in the league all year. So uh, it's, you know, going to be an exciting weekend. It's going to come down uh, to a, a play or two here or there in both of these games. You know, I think these these probably are the best four teams in football. All right. Certainly, you know, Buffalo – uh, is in the mix in that conversation, but um, we know how that went last week. So it's going to be a phenomenal weekend of football, and we will certainly check back in uh, next week and see uh, how the conference championship games played out and who will be playing in the Super Bowl in a couple weeks. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update here in the NHL. Most teams have played between 48 to 50 games, uh, roughly, so uh, we are in that third quarter of the season and um you know it's still a lot of hockey left but um you know we got just a few more months of the nhl season uh last week we switched our standings updates to the wild card standings which i'll give you the top three teams from each division uh, plus the two top wild card teams remaining in the conference and then several teams that are still in contention and we'll start off in the eastern conference the Atlantic Division, uh, the Boston Bruins uh, are still up top. They paced the NHL with 80 points, right? They, their record is just sensational. They're 38-5-4. and four. I mean, that's you can't even, can't even make that up. They have a 14-point lead over the Toronto Maple Leafs, who are second in that division with 66 points. Third place in that division is the Tampa Bay Lightning with 61 points, all right? Their record is really good. And they're still 19 points back of Boston. All right, just insane. In the Metropolitan Division, the Carolina Hurricanes uh, are up top with 66 points. They're actually tied it with New, uh, the New Jersey Devils, 66 points. Right, but um, the point percentage for the Hurricanes is higher, so that is what breaks the tie there. Third in the Metropolitans, the New York Rangers. Uh, they have 59 points, so they're still very much in the mix for that division. The top two wildcard teams uh, at the moment, the Pittsburgh Penguins with 56 points and the Washington Capitals also with 56 points. 
All right, those two teams, uh, you know, Washington's kind of been up and down, uh, but they're they're sitting there as the second wild card team currently. The first team out of the playoffs as it sits now, the Buffalo Sabres with 53 points. The Florida Panthers have 52 points. The New York Islanders have 51 points, all right? They're just five points back of Washington and Pittsburgh. And then the Detroit Red Wings, they have 48 points as it sits right now, all right? So they're they're just eight points back. So too are the Philadelphia Flyers with 48 points, all right? So those are really the teams that will be in contention for those uh, two wild card spots. The Eastern Conference, you know, is obviously top-heavy with with Boston, Toronto, uh, Carolina, and New Jersey all having more than 66 points, which is more than any team in the Western Conference. And speaking of the Western Conference, uh, the Central Division, my Dallas Stars uh, currently pace the Western Conference with 64 points. They are atop the Central. All right, They have eight overtime losses, which is uh, third most in the entire Western Conference. So if you, s- you flip a few of those games around to victories, uh, they got a little more cushion uh, on their lead. But uh, this past week, Jason Robertson scored his 30th goal of the year uh, in, in just the 46th game of the year, All right, which made him the fastest player in Dallas Stars franchise history to score 30 goals. Previous record was Mike Madano in 48 games. All right, So he's been having a terrific year. He's the Dallas Stars' only all-star, which I think is just... Um, uh, almost uh, criminal, right? Um, he's having this amazing year. Stars are first place in the Western Conference. They only have one all-star. So uh, somebody explain that to me. But uh, the Winnipeg Jets are second in the Central with 63 points. They're just one point back at Dallas. They've had a terrific year. Uh, missed the playoffs last year, so quite the turnaround for Winnipeg this year. Third in the Central is the Minnesota Wild with 54 points. All right, they're 10 points back at Dallas, nine points back at Winnipeg. Um, but they have made substantial improvement over the last month or so, uh, getting up into that top three of the Central. Over in the Pacific Division, the Vegas Golden Knights are up top with 61 points. All right, just behind them, the Los Angeles Kings with 60 points. And then you have the Seattle Kraken with 59 points. That Pacific Division is really tight. All three of those teams are within two points. And then your two wild card teams currently, as it sits right now, are both also out of the Pacific Division. The first wild card is the Edmonton Oilers. They have 57 points. Uh, Connor McDavid just continues to just absolutely dominate the league, uh, taking it by storm. He scored his 40th goal of the season last week in, in just the 48th game of the season for them. Uh, which made him the fastest player uh, in, in the NHL to reach 40 goals since Pavel Bure did it in 1999, all right? So, I mean, he's already got over 80 points, 40 goals. Uh, the, the kid is just simply incredible. He's going to have 130 points probably before the year's done. Um, and that's why I think Edmonton, you know, I, I do believe that when it's all said and done, there's there's a solid chance that we might see uh, five teams from the Pacific potentially uh, make the playoffs. But the other wild card team currently is the Calgary Flames with 55 points. All right, so they're two points back of Edmonton for that top wild card spot and uh, four points back of Seattle for that third place in the Pacific. All right, but they, they're they still, you know, obviously a good team. 
And then first team out of the playoffs currently is the defending Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche. They're at 53 points, so they're just two points back of Calgary, right? Uh, four points back of Edmonton. And then to catch the Wild for third in the Central, they're only a point behind them, all right? They're 10 points back of Winnipeg, so uh, and 11 points back of the Stars. So they got a little work to do if they want to climb back up to the top of the Central, where they were last year, but... Um, you know, Colorado, I, I don't see how they miss the playoffs, but, you know, they really haven't been good all year. Their record's 25-17-3, so that's, that's you know, not great. It's not bad, but it's not great. And then the Nashville Predators are uh, behind Colorado with 52 points. All right, so they're, they're in that mix. St. Louis Blues, 49 points, all three of those teams. The first three teams out of the playoffs as it sits now are all from the Central Division. Um you know, it's it's Pacific dominated right now in the Western Conference, but uh, the top two teams in the Western Conference are both from the Central. So it's kind of odd how that has worked out. Uh, and then that's pretty much all that's in contention from the Western Conference, um, you know, because the, the next closest team uh, is Vancouver with 39 points. So they're, they're not going to catch uh, any of those teams in front of them when it's all said and done, especially with a coaching change. I suppose if Rick Tockett comes in, uh, we'll talk about that more in Around the Island. Uh, but if he comes in and, and kind of changes some things, and you know, we'll see. But they're, they're expected to potentially be sellers at the trade deadline. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think Vancouver's really in it. So that's the Western Conference. It's going to be competitive, like I said, uh, Pacific Division heavy at the moment. Uh, but, you know, the NHL, there's, there's still, like I said, about 34 games or so for most of these teams, maybe 36 games for some teams. So a um, lot of hockey left, a couple months of the season, and we're quickly approaching the All-Star break. So we will definitely keep you up to date uh, with the most current wild card standings uh, with every week that passes. But we'll move over to the NBA, do a standings update here in the NBA. I don't have much news to bring you from the NBA other than just simply doing the standings update. So we'll uh, get you caught up on that. Most teams, again, just like the NHL, uh, they're keeping pace. They between forty-seven to forty-nine games played for most teams, so uh, they're right there with the NHL. And the way the NBA playoffs work, just a reminder: uh, the top six teams get into the playoffs. Teams seven through ten in each conference have a play-in tournament to determine the actual seven and eight seeds. So essentially, the top ten teams in each conference. Uh, make either the playoffs or the play-in tournament to get into the playoffs. So a little more expansive than the NHL. I do like that. Kind of opens it up uh, for more teams to kind of make it. But uh, starting in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics are up top there at 35 and 14. All right. They um, they had won uh, eight games in a row before losing a couple. And um, they got a three-and-a-half game lead on the Philadelphia 76ers, who are second at 30 and 16. Uh, they've won five games in a row. All right. They're, they're on a heater right now, looking really good. They've climbed up into the second spot. Milwaukee Bucks are third in the East at 30 and 17. The Brooklyn Nets, still without Kevin Durant, so they're kind of treading water. Uh, they're 29 and 17. They've gone five and five in their last 10, and they haven't had Kevin Durant for a majority of those. Uh, he should hopefully be coming back soon for them. Fifth in the Eastern Conference is the Cleveland Cavaliers at 29 and 20. 
uh, they're still being somewhat of a nuisance enough to contend uh, for a playoff spot. The Miami Heat are sixth at 27 and 22. They've played really well over the last couple weeks. They're uh, won seven out of their last 10. All right. And then uh, seventh place in the Eastern Conference, the New York Knicks at 26 and 33. Eighth is the Atlanta Hawks at 24 and 24. Ninth is the Indiana Pacers at 24 and 25. They've only won three times in their last 10 games. And then 10th in the Eastern Conference is the Chicago Bulls at uh, 22 and 25. 11th is the Toronto Raptors at 21 and 27. Washington Wizards are 12th at 20 and 26. And then the bottom three teams in the Eastern Conference, the Orlando Magic at 18 and 29. Charlotte Hornets at 13 and 35. And the Detroit Pistons at 12 and 37. Uh, Detroit has lost eight out of their last 10. Over in the Western Conference, the Denver Nuggets are up top at 34 and 14. Uh, they've won nine out of their last 10. All right, just playing exceptional. They're 22 and four at home, which is just outrageous. Um, they just do not lose, um, you know, at uh, Ball Arena. Number two in the Western Conference, the Memphis Grizzlies. They're 31 and 16, just a couple, uh, two and a half games behind Denver. All right, they've won, which this is interesting. They've won seven out of their last 10, but they, okay, so they lost the last three games, all right? But they, they won 11 games in a row. They were on an 11-game winning streak um, last week, and uh, they've lost all three games since that winning streak uh, came to an end. But obviously still very, very good team there in Memphis. Third is the Sacramento Kings, all right? They are 27-19, and 19 and they've used uh, seven uh, wins in their last 10 games to propel themselves up to third. Somehow the Sacramento Kings are third in the Western Conference. With all the firepower in the West, the Sacramento bleeping Kings are third right now. The New Orleans Pelicans are fourth. They're 26 and 22, but they are going in the wrong direction. They have lost five in a row and eight out of their last 10. Okay, just um, got to get it turned around. Fifth place in the Western Conference, my Dallas Mavericks at 25 and 23. All right, they, uh, they're, they're running into some trouble. Okay, they have only won three games out of their last 10, and they just lost Christian Wood last week to a broken thumb. So there's no timetable that I've seen on that. But, um, you know, the trade deadline's coming up. Who knows what's going to happen? The Mavericks, I've been saying this all year. All right, and if you've listened, you, you've, you've heard me say this. The Mavericks need to make a move at the trade deadline, all right? When Christian Wood comes back, uh, Wood and Doncic need some help, all right? And uh, something better than Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, you know, I'm okay with Spencer Dinwiddie, but they're going to have to give up some guys to get a decent player in here. And I think those two are probably expendable. But the Mavs, either way, they're, they're such a streaky team. Um, you know, they their home road split isn't that great either. 17 and 8 at home, 8 and 15 on the road. That's probably got to change a little bit uh, if they want to uh, be in the playoffs. Los Angeles Clippers are 6th in the West at 25 and 24. Phoenix Suns, uh, they've gotten back up to 7th. I believe last week they may have been 9th. Uh, they're 24 and 24. They've won three in a row to get themselves up to 7th. All right. And then. Um, Eighth in the Western Conference, the Utah Jazz at 25 and 25. 
Minnesota Timberwolves, 24 and 25. They're sitting at ninth right now. And then the Golden State Warriors, they are 10th in the West at 23 and 24. All right. They have won a few more road games. All right. They're, they're up to six road wins. They're 17 and six at home and six and 18 on the road. Okay. That's Again, same with Dallas. That's got to change. They're they're really underperforming. I mean, they have Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, like Jordan Poole. Like that team is not the 10th best team in the Western Conference. Certainly their payroll doesn't indicate that. So um, that is horribly disappointing. And in fact, the Oklahoma City Thunder are 11th in the West. They have the same record as the Golden State Warriors. The Oklahoma City Thunder. Name one person on the Thunder besides Shea Gilgis Alexander, you know, and I'll wait. <laughs> and they're tied with the Warriors with the same record, okay? Thunder have been playing really good basketball. They look like one of the teams that were going to be tanking potentially. Um, but they're they're right there on the bubble of, of the play-in tournament as it sits right now. So, you know, Shea Gilgis Alexander, the aforementioned. Uh, he is spectacular. That kid really has come into his own this year, and he is just an absolute force. Los Angeles Lakers, they're 12th in the West at 22-25. and 25. They just made a trade. We'll talk about that in Around the Island. Portland Trailblazers are 13th at 22-25. and 25. Uh, It's not going well for them over their last 10. And then the bottom two teams in the Western Conference, San Antonio Spurs at 14-33. and 33. And Houston Rockets at 11 and 36 to officially be the worst team in the NBA. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot, you know, same thing, 48 ish games. A couple teams have played 50 games, but uh, we're right there with the NHL in terms of pace of the season. Uh, NBA All Star games coming up. Probably have some more news on that next week. But um, yeah, just. Uh, it, it's been exciting. Like I said, some surprising teams, both good and bad. Um, you know, positive surprises and negative surprises. So, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll check back in next week and see, uh, where we're at then. But we'll move over to the PGA Tour and recap, uh, this past weekend's tournament, which was just absolutely sensational. All right. The, uh, PGA returned to the mainland United States after a two week stint there in Hawaii. So uh, this weekend's tournament was the American Express, and that was in Coachella Valley, California, Northern California, all right? And uh, we used three courses for this thing, a little different format than what we're used to seeing, obviously, at one course. Uh, They used a total of three courses for this tournament. Uh, One was the PGA West, which featured the Stadium Course and the Nicholas Tournament Course. The other was the La Quinta Country Club. Now, the stadium course at PGA West, uh, all three courses are par 72s. The stadium course was 7,187 yards. The Nicholas Tournament course was 7,147 yards, 40 yards shorter. And then the La Quinta Country Club was just over 7,000 yards at 7,060. All right, and the way this thing went down, all of the golfers played one round at each of the three courses before the cut was made after the third round, all right? They made a 54-hole cut, which is different. Normally, we have a 36-hole cut. And the final round for the golfers on Sunday took place at the PGA West Stadium course, okay? This was actually a pro-am tournament as well. 
it's one of two pro-ams that's on the, the PGA Tours calendar. Uh, this one and the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. All right, so each professional golfer and his amateur partner, they played three rounds, uh, one at each of those courses that I just talked about. And then the low 65 professional golfers uh, and ties uh, played their final round, uh, like I just mentioned, at the stadium course. All right. The American Express is one of the longest tenured uh, PGA Tour events. This is the 64th edition of the American Express. We had a really good field for this thing, all right? Five uh, exceptional field, honestly. Five out of the top 10 golfers in the official world golf rankings were out there, and 10 out of the top 19 in those rankings. We also had 10 out of the top 18 that were in the current FedEx Cup standings coming into this week, all right? Um, so a lot, a lot of big-name players, all right? Uh, but the story of this thing, man, Davis Thompson, he came out flying in this thing. Uh, he shot a remarkable 10-under round of 62 in round one on Thursday, followed that up with another great round on Friday. And this guy was dropping eagles left and right, all right? Uh, by the end of the round on Friday, Davis Thompson had tied uh, a PGA Tour record for the most eagles in a 72-hole tournament. He did that in the first two rounds. That's five eagles he had in the first two rounds. That record was set back in 1983. So it's been standing for uh, quite a while, right, and uh, 40 years. And so uh, he he was just on fire with that. And um, just a really fantastic competitive tournament all the way around, all right. Uh, in addition to Davis Thompson's record number of eagles, we saw an albatross on Sunday afternoon. Xander Schauffele uh, scored a two on a par five after holing out from 250 yards uh, on the par five fifth hole on Sunday. That was just an incredible shot. Um, made him a lot of money because his he played a really good round after that, but uh, that got him jumped up you know, three shots on, on that one hole. So that was very impressive. But the, the really crazy thing is that throughout this tournament, we had seven rounds of 10 under par or better by seven different golfers. So there were seven golfers who shot one round of a 10 under 62 or better. All right. The, the lowest round of the tournament was Dylan Wu. He shot an 11-under round of 61 during Saturday's third round. So, I mean, we saw low scores all over the place in this thing. It was just a really competitive tournament. Um, and at the end of it, the winner of this was John Rahm with a score of 27-under par. Okay, he um, This was actually his fourth victory in his last six starts worldwide. Okay, He's played on the DP Tour um, over in Europe as well. Uh, just The guy has just been on absolute fire, all right? And um, his winning score of 27 under was his third career victory with a winning score of 27 under par or better, all right? Guy has multiple wins, uh, just racking up, you know, filling up that trophy case at home. Uh, guy's been lights out. He opened on Thursday and Friday with back-to-back uh, -back eight under rounds of 64, um, Saturday had a uh, a seven under round of sixty five, and then closed on Sunday with a six under round of uh, uh, sixty eight or four under round of sixty eight. 
Uh, his birdie on 16 on Sunday is, is what gave him the one-shot lead over Davis Thompson. Those two guys uh, both played. Uh, they started out, I think, at 23 under par, both of them. And um, Davis Thompson only shot a 3-under 69 on Sunday. Uh, so Rom's birdie on 16 on Sunday gave him that one-shot lead with two holes to play. And uh, both of them ended up parring the final two holes. So clutch moment for Rom. Davis Thompson was solo second at 26 under par. A couple guys finished tied for third at 25 under par. Xander Shoffley and Chris Kirk. I mentioned Shoffley that round on Sunday, 10 under 62, highlighted by that albatross. Uh, solo fifth, Taylor Montgomery, 24 under par. And then there was... Uh, Five guys at 23 under par. Uh, Matty Schmid, Robbie Shelton, Tom Kim. Tom Kim had a, a 10 under round of 62 on Friday. And uh, then JT Poston also finished at 23 under par. All right. Um, some guys, some other big name players Scotty Scheffler, Sam Burns, all right. Christian Bezadenhout. Those guys finished all at 22 under par. All right. Um, Bezadenhout was one of the other guys at, at 10 under 62 on, on Saturday. So, again, I say all of that to say this tournament, uh, yeah, it was won by a big-name player. There were plenty of big-name players out there, but it was very competitive, came down to really the last few holes. We saw some amazing golf. I mean, seven rounds of 10 under for a tournament is uh, just, I mean, out of this world, all right? But that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is the Farmers Insurance Open. And that is at the Torrey Pines Golf Course, which is in La Jolla, California, just outside of San Diego. It's a par 72 distance. Uh, we're going to use two courses for this thing. The south course at Torrey Pines is 7,765 yards. North course is 7,258 yards. Both of them are par 72s. Uh, the south course is about 500 yards longer. All right. So both the north and the south course are going to be utilized this week at Torrey Pines. Uh, players are going to alternate between the north and the south courses for the first two rounds. All right, then they'll make the cut. So every, you know, all the guys are going to play a round on the north and a round on the south. They'll make a 36-hole cut. And then the final two rounds on Saturday and Sunday will both be played on the south course after the cuts have been made. All right. Now, Torrey Pines, uh, we've seen it host a, a, a number of high-profile tournaments, including the U.S. Open uh, recently. Uh, it's known for being a long, challenging course. All right, South course is, is 7,700 yards. I mean, that is just a monster of a course, very undulating. And then, of course, uh, being on the coast of California, certainly a wind is going to be a factor, right, uh, particularly on that south course. It turns a longer course into an even longer course with the wind. All right, format for this is, is a little different than what we normally see. Most PGA tournaments are Thursday through Sunday. This event is uh, Wednesday through Saturday, which is uh, the second consecutive year they've done that. It's the only PGA Tour event that will have a Saturday finish. All right, so that is something to keep note. By the time you listen to this, uh, it may already be uh, underway. So uh, the field for this thing is another fantastic turn. Uh, Fantastic field of players for the tournament. Five out of the top ten in the official World Golf rankings are going to be out there. Xander Shoffley, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, Will Zalatoris, and then last week's winner, John Rahm, who has uh, previously won this event. Um, 
back in 2017, I believe. He also won the U.S. Open here at Torrey Pines a couple of years ago in 2021. All right, and Rahm has played really well at this course. His worst finish, um, he's, he's played here, I think, seven uh, out of his last seven starts here. I think his worst finish is T27. All the others are inside the top seven, all right, including a couple of wins, one at the Farmers Insurance Open, one at the U.S. Open. So a uh, guy, you know, comes in winning four out of his last six events and comes to a course where he historically has dominated. So I would certainly look for John Rahm to uh, be up there uh, top of the leaderboard on Sunday. Some other notable names are going to be out there. Tony Finau, Max Homa, Hideki Matsuyama, Justin Rose, and Jason Day. Okay, now last year's edition of this tournament uh, was an epic playoff between Luke List and Will Zalatoris. It went to a playoff, and uh, Luke List ended up winning for his first career PGA Tour victory. Um, so keep an eye on, on just the scores on this thing, uh, and I, I think we're going to be in for another fantastic tournament uh, like we saw last week, and really last year with this tournament going into a playoff. So um, you know, buckle up for another exciting weekend to golf. But we'll move over to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. Uh, we got stuff from the NFL, the NHL, and uh, Major League Baseball this week. So we'll go ahead and get started on that in the National Football League. The NFL announced that there is going to be uh, five international games next year. And uh, in addition to that announcement, they announced the uh, home teams for those games. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, shocker of the century here, they're going to play a game at Wembley Stadium in London, as they seemingly have done for like the past, I don't know, seven, eight years, it seems like. Uh, the Buffalo Bills and the Tennessee Titans, uh, they will each play a game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which is also in London. The Kansas City Chiefs and the New England Patriots, uh, they are going to play games in Germany, all right? I know the NFL branched out to Germany this year, uh, and that seemed to be a pretty good success. So uh, the full matchups for those games are going to be released uh, at a later date, but, you know, the NFL certainly expanding their uh, NFL brand uh, globally now, as they've done, um, started out with just the London games. This past year, we saw... Uh, London game, Germany game, and uh, Mexico City game. So it <clears throat> looks like next year they're just going to have three games in London and two in Germany. But either way, um, you know, those are always fun with the time change, uh, some really early NFL football on those Sundays. But uh, the NFL also uh, announced the captains for the Pro Bowl games. Of course, they have already announced uh, that Peyton Manning is going to coach the AFC team Eli Manning is going to coach the NFC team. And this past week, they announced a captain for each of those teams, and they're not players. All right, Snoop Dogg is going to captain the AFC team, while Pete Davidson is going to captain the NFC team. Now, I think this is a tad bit ridiculous, personally. All right, the NFL, we know they're doing away with the actual Pro Bowl football game. They're making it a week-long skills competition, so it's more of a dog and pony show uh, no pun intended on that but um you know couple that with the fact that it's in vegas right so it's their job to entertain and uh so here we are right we have snoop dogg and pete davidson now part of this thing uh, i'm gonna watch either way 
uh, Pro Bowl skills competition. But, you know, I, I don't know how I could do without seeing Snoop or uh, Pete Davidson there. But I'm sure they'll make it entertaining, you know, as the NFL always does, certainly with the new format this year, doing away with the actual football game. I think it'll be fun. <clears throat> but, you know, I just thought that was uh, interesting to note. Uh, final piece of NFL news, uh, Alabama offensive coordinator slash quarterback coach Bill O'Brien. He is returning to the NFL as he is being named the offensive coordinator for the New England Patriots, all right? Uh, O'Brien was a Patriots assistant coach from 20, uh, 2007 to 2011, and now he's returning to New England. Of course, he was the head coach of uh, Houston at one point. Uh, but O'Brien goes back to the Patriots, where he now gets to coach Mac Jones, uh, who he briefly worked with at Alabama uh, before Mac Jones went to the NFL. So I just thought was that that was a noteworthy hire there. Uh, over in the National Hockey League, the Vancouver Canucks, they have fired head coach Bruce Boudreaux after just two seasons. Um, he had some really great success when he first took over, uh, last I mean, beginning of last year, I think, but... Uh, the Canucks missed the playoffs by just two points. All right, and this year, uh, not off to a great start, as we discussed. Certainly, they're they're at the bottom um, of the Pacific Division, uh, or near the bottom. And uh, this firing really wasn't a surprise. It had kind of been reported about a week prior to it actually happening, and then uh, the Canucks lost ten of their previous twelve games leading up to the official firing announcement. They they reported it as a mutual parting of ways, but. Uh, either way, Boudreaux got canned, and Rick Tockett has been named the Canucks' new head coach, former player, uh, but he is now the head coach. He's the 21st head coach in Canucks history, and uh, interesting couple of assistant coaches the Canucks signed, um, former perennial all-star NHL defenseman Adam Foote and Sergei Gonchar, both added as assistant coaches. So they just named three former players, uh, Tockett, Foote, and Gonchar, as assistant coaches. So <clears throat> they, um, you know, it's possible the Canucks will be active at the trade deadline, but we shall see. Um, but uh, the NHL did release this past week. They released the final fan vote for the winners uh, of the NHL's All Star Game fan vote. All right, we already a couple episodes ago we discussed the initial selections for the All Star rosters, uh, but I'm going to give you the final three selections for each division that were named via the fan vote, all right? So remember the NHL, every team has to be represented uh, for each division's all-star team. So uh, I've already gone over those rosters. <clears throat> the final three selections for each division in the Metropolitan Division, uh, Ad uh, Adam Fox and Artemi Panarin from the New York Rangers, along with Ilya Sorokin of the New York Islanders. The Atlantic Division have Austin Matthews from the Toronto Maple Leafs, David Pasternak from the Boston Bruins, and Andre Vasilevsky from the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Central Division, Miko Rantanen and Nathan McKinnon of the Colorado Avalanche, and Connor Hallebuck of the Winnipeg Jets, who is my former high school teammate. All right, so uh, congrats to Connor. That's his third all-star selection, and uh, I still remember uh, lacing him up with him uh, in high school like it was yesterday. So uh, the Pacific Division, Leon Dreisaitl and Stuart Skinner of the Edmonton Oilers and Bo Horvat of those aforementioned 
Vancouver Canucks. All right, so I told you a couple weeks ago when I you know, listed the original rosters that we'd have some bigger names that would be added, and uh, boy, did we. Um, there's some serious talent that just got added out of those names that I just mentioned, some of which, frankly, probably should have been on the all-star roster to begin with. But like I said, the rule about every NHL team needing to be represented, uh, <clears throat> these guys had to be voted in via the fan vote, which uh, they were. Now, the all-star game for the NHL is uh, Saturday, February 4th, at uh, FLA Live Arena in Florida, Sunrise, Florida. Uh, over to the NBA, quick note here. We did have one trade to report from this past week. The Los Angeles Lakers went out and acquired forward Rui Hachimura from the Washington Wizards in exchange for Kendrick Nunn and three second-round picks. Now, the second-round picks that the Lakers sent the Wizards is this year's second-round pick, which they acquired via Chicago. Their own, the Lakers sent their own second round pick in 2029, which is, you know, a uh, solid five, six years from now, right? And then the less favorable of the, either the Wizards or the Lakers second round pick uh, in 2028. So uh, kind of a weird sequence of draft picks that were given up there. Um, I've, I don't know that I've seen draft picks given up that far in advance, but Nonetheless, uh, the Lakers made the trade with the intent of signing Hachimura to an extension, uh, which he was not going to get in Washington. Uh, Rui Hachimura is an athletic big man, defends really well, and he can hit the three. Uh, he was the ninth overall pick just a few years ago in 2019, uh, the draft that year. He in, He's playing about 24 minutes a game, averaging 13 points and four and a half rebounds a game in that time frame. So, Pretty decent player. Um, I think he'll, you know, the Lakers need some help. Any and all help is welcome in Los Angeles there with where the Lakers are uh, in the standings. So I think Hachimura certainly will be a benefit uh, to that Lakers lineup, especially because Anthony Davis can't stay healthy. So uh, I think Hachimura probably will, probably will end up playing more than the 24 minutes a game he was playing in Washington, but we will have to see on that. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball, and uh, we got a couple of trades and a free agent signing to uh, note. The first trade was a pretty impactful trade. Minnesota Twins, they went out and acquired starting pitcher Pablo Lopez from the Miami Marlins in exchange for infielder Luis Arise. Now, Arise was the American League batting champion this past season. I think he hit 317, I think his average was. But that trade made Luis Arise the first player since 1978 to win a batting title and then be traded in the following offseason. Right, and on the other hand, Pablo Lopez had a great year for Miami last year. His record doesn't indicate it. He was 10-10 and with a 3.75 ERA, which is not great. But early on in the year, he started out uh, playing really well, kind of had his name uh, in that early, very early Cy Young consideration before his teammate, Sandy Alcantara, just dominated the National League the rest of the way and ended up winning the NL Cy Young. But uh, it's a good trade. Uh, the Twins need starting pitching to contend in that uh, American League Central. And then, of course, they, they signed uh, Carlos Correa after that drama. So uh, Luis Arise was was expendable at that point. Um, to a certain extent. They're getting a decent starting pitcher there in Lopez. So I think it's a beneficial trade for both teams. And, um, you know, we'll have to see how that turns out. The uh, 
Second trade of note was between Boston and Kansas City. The Boston Red Sox, they went out and acquired shortstop Adalberto Mondesi from the Kansas City Royals in exchange for uh, relief pitcher Josh Taylor and a player to be named later. Now, Adalberto Mondesi is a very interesting player, all right? He's 27 years old, so he's still very much in the prime of his career. The problem is with him is that He's only played a total of 50 games over the past two seasons, which uh, it's 162 games. So it's 324 games uh, between two seasons if you play all of them. So he's only played in 50 out of a possible 324. So that is not great. He played 15 games this past year before tearing his ACL. And then in 2021, he played 35 games uh, before he uh, severely hurt his hamstring and his left oblique. Now, Mondesi, he won't hit for a very high batting average, but if he gets on the base base paths, he is one of the more electric base runners in baseball. I mean, he'll steal 50 or 60 bases if he plays a full season, all right? And even if he doesn't, he may still, you know, hit uh, that number. So he, he is very electric on the base paths, and he was one of the top prospects in all of baseball just a handful of years ago. So, uh, his career hasn't panned out due to those injuries, but um, he is certainly, if he can stay healthy, uh, he will fit in nicely in that Boston Red Sox lineup um, that is anchored by Raphael Devers, all right? Um, so those are the two trades of note. The free agent signing of note uh, involves the Kansas City Royals. They signed closer Aroldis Chapman to a one-year $3.75 million deal, very low low-risk, high-reward signing for Kansas City. Of course, Chapman, he's been a dominant closer in the league for you know the last seven, eight years. Uh, he got a little sour with the New York Yankees last year, uh, causing him to – he basically quit uh, the Yankees right before the playoffs started. They had kind of benched him, and uh, he wasn't happy, and uh, basically quit, didn't didn't show up for any of their, their playoff uh, – practices and whatnot so the Yankees uh, did not re-sign him they let him walk and um, you know Chapman can still throw over 100 miles an hour and uh, I think it's I mean obviously it's a good signing Uh, Kansas City has um, um, Barlow I think his name is as as their their closer from last year so he'll fit in nicely in that Kansas City bullpen of course Um, we just talked about them trading Mondesi but they did sign a role as Chapman, and uh, you know I don't think the Royals are really going to contend for the AL Central this year. But um, you know that's a that's a good piece for the back end of that bullpen. But that is going to wrap up the 107th episode of the Sports Island Podcast. Uh, it is just a fantastic weekend uh, for sports. You know, of course, in the NFL we have the two conference championship games on Sunday. That will be. Uh, every bit as dramatic and exciting as as we can hope and um, the winner of those two games obviously will generate our Super Bowl matchup that we will discuss next week and then of course uh, NHL and the NBA are still rolling along and then on the PGA Tour we have a great tournament in the Farmers Insurance Open which uh, ends on Saturday as we talked about so uh, plenty of stuff to watch the golf will not interfere with the football this week so I'll probably tune in certainly uh on uh, Saturday's round and try to catch some of uh, Friday's round as well. Uh, But 
um, you know, lots of stuff to get into next week, as, as always. Um, so we will certainly keep you up to date uh, with the latest uh, news and info from around the sports world. So until next week, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.